It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank Taste you. of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day there and thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage from the ANU studio at the Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. This week I want to direct a bit of attention to our part of the world, the Southeast Asian region, and we have a couple of excellent guests with which to do that. But first, let me make some brief observations about the weekend by-election in the seat completely surrounding the ACT, Eden Monero or as the PM called it last week, Eden Monario. It's all but official that Labor has won this vigorously fought contest. Christy McBain has certainly claimed victory, but the Libs aren't uh, conceding just yet. It's fairly close, but uh, they say that Labor's going to get over the line. This, of course, merely keeps the seat in Labor hands and continues a 100-year record of governments failing to increase their majority via by-elections. So, in a sense, nothing happened. But it did. Indeed, there were many reasons why this by-election should have broken that 100-year record. First, there's the pandemic, which has upended Australian life, changing everything. Second, notwithstanding his feckless bushfire response, Scott Morrison is soaring in the polling stratosphere, with voters grateful for the billions being handed out in wage subsidies, industry packages, an increased dole and, of course, the National Cabinet. And third, the seat, the so-called bellwether, has stayed in government hands, whichever side was in power, since 1972, right up to 2016, when Mike Kelly wrested it off the Liberals, even though the ALP failed to win the election, or the next one in 2019. So it could easily have reverted to type, but it did not. Instead, Eden Monero voters saw the circus of John Barilaro and Andrew Constance and all the Lib Nat infighting and thought, hmm, no thanks. Now, A number of hardliners were sort of commenting on this on election night and the various uh, panel shows that uh, TV stations run these days on election night. 
And people like Jim Molan and Angus Taylor spent their election night comments celebrating minor booth wins in places like Tumut, where the Conservatives always win anyway, while ignoring the seat-wide evidence right before them that a pro-liberal swing just simply hadn't materialised. Regardless of who wins, we have to pin this on Anthony Albanese, said Jim Molan. Just couldn't work out what to have to pin on them. Winning? He has to pin winning on uh, Anthony Albanese? It was slightly bizarre. And that was the nature of a lot of the commentary all through the night. Either way, I think we can say this at least. Voters do still like giving governments a tickle up in by-elections, and long may that be so. And even with the aid of billions in handouts, Scott Morrison is not the miracle worker he might have thought he was, or at least some of his supporters thought he was. Now, I'm sure our guests will have a few things to say about that. Uh, not least, Maria Teflaga, who's with me each week for Democracy Sausage and is a political scientist with the School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, how did you see the by-election? Oh, hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. Um, well, I guess I'm always a bit bemused by, by by-elections in the sense that I think they are often quite difficult to interpret and to, um, I guess, make meaningful generalizations from, I think, you know, I, there tends to be, I guess, a bit of a sort of confirmation bias. Like we remember the storied ones, you know, such as the Aston by-election, for example. Uh, but then, no, we don't tend to always remember ones that um, may have also been an important sort of signifier of what was going on, um, but we sort of forget. So, you know, Peter Reith famously uh, failed to uh, win a by-election in 1982, for example, in the lead-up to the 1983 election. I guess what is interesting about this by-election is um, how well the shooters, fishers and farmers uh, did in this election. They received a 5.4% swing, mostly at the expense, looking at these figures, probably of the nationals and possibly um, Labor. The The overall other vote, um, you know, is in kind of is increasing, which is in line with uh, the long-term decline of party identification in Australia, which I should note is actually very high uh, compared to um, international comparisons. So what that means is, in Australia, in this country, voters tend to pick a party, uh, probably because it's the party their parents voted for. Uh, and they've been raised in a household with those kinds of values, and then they just vote that way for the rest of their lives. And so what we're sort of seeing is the breakdown of this relationship, which used to sort of sit at 80% for decades and decades and decades, and that is now starting to to break down. And I would argue that is actually probably good for democracy um, because you kind of do want to sort of, I guess, have more movement and variation in what's going on. But, of course, the major parties will complain about this and and uh, and say this is very this is very sort of scary and, the, you know, the rise of all kinds of potential nefarious forces. But really what they're saying is it's it's harder for them to win majorities and it's harder for them to win elections. Yeah, it's an interesting point. James uh, Masola, you succeeded me, of course, as a chief political correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. You're now the Southeast Asia correspondent for those venerable mastheads. But you're back in Australia at the moment, uh, courtesy of COVID, as it's been the the, um, the situation, I guess, for a number of uh, foreign correspondents for media organisations. Just uh, going back into your previous role as a as a political correspondent, a political watcher, um, what was it like for you watching this by election, and what lessons do you think uh, emerged from it? Look, I think the <clears throat> thanks for having me, Mark. I think the Liberal Party were probably overplaying a little bit. Uh, you know the gains that they made. Yes, it was a tight result, uh, but it wasn't 
kind of the uh, the resounding endorsement or near endorsement of Scott Morrison that some of the uh, some commentators, some politicians were making it out to be. I, I think Joel Fitzgibbon was right. You know, a win is a win, and it was an ugly win. Um, but you know, it, it will do for Anthony Albanese. The other thing I found bizarre watching the by-election and the lead-up to the by-election, Mark, is this idea that um, John Barillaro, now I know he has a you know significant profile, this is of course the New South Wales Deputy Premier, that he could potentially win the seat for the Nats, either at this by-election, of course he ended up not running, or at the next general election. Um, I just wonder how realistic that is. I mean, I think in the sort of further-flung parts of Eden Monero, Maybe, you know, he'll be a significant vote winner. But the seat, of course, is centred around Queanbeyan. And Queanbeyan is home to a lot of Canberra public servants and Canberra leans fairly heavily Labor or Labor Greens. And I just don't know how realistic it is to think the Nats could ever win that seat. You know, never say never, of course, in politics. But um, I just, uh, you know, I, I think probably there was a bit of mixed messaging there. Of course, we had the story about... The, you know, the idea that some nationals were actually preferencing or arguing that Labor should be preferenced section, uh, second so John could have a, uh, a run or a tilt at the, the next general election. I just think that's a bit unrealistic and I think that probably cost uh, Fiona Cotvoy's a few votes and maybe it would have even changed the result uh, on Saturday. I was going to say, it's a really fascinating uh, uh, dynamic, that one, uh, with John Barillaro. He was obviously involved in in a very messy process, as I referred to in the introduction, uh, in terms of the selection of the Liberal candidate. He was having a a fight with Andrew Constance. Uh, They're both ministers in the Berejiklian government. They're the two state seats that make up the federal seat. They're both said to be quite popular. They were not going to run against each other and were said to be mates and all this, but then there were angry text exchange. We saw Barillaro's intemperate text messages uh, that he'd sent to Michael McCormack, which um, made it into uh, Sky News, courtesy of Andrew Clennell. Um, so, it, you know, that was a very untidy business. But I, I agree with you, James. I think it's really quite a heroic uh, sort of assumption to think that even if John Barillaro does have a high recognition factor in the electorate, even if he's quite popular as a uh, state member of parliament, that he would be able to... Um, uh, you know, um, run as the candidate, knock off, uh, you know, defeat, finish ahead of a Liberal candidate, and uh, and take the seat at a federal election. I I've, I find that I find that uh, highly unlikely on the basis of the numbers that we've seen. Yeah, I, and it sort of goes to uh, what you're sort of saying there. I mean, the what is kind of important to understand is that there is no love lost between the Nationals and the Liberal Party, particularly the country Liberals. Um, in the New South Wales uh, divisions. And the idea that the Liberal Party will just graciously stand aside for Mr. Barillaro, I think is beyond uh, fantasy, um, particularly when he effectively admitted that he didn't vote for uh, Fiona <laughs> Godfoy's at the, at the last election, which is an extraordinary admission. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, he okay. voted for Mike Kelly, right? He said exactly. Mike Kelly was a friend of mine and I, I gave him my second preference after the, the Nationals candidate. Which meant that that vote went to Mike Kelly because Indeed. the Nationals polled about 7% at the last election in that seat. Which also goes to why it seems unlikely that a Nationals candidate could actually take the seat. But Yeah, precisely, precisely. But I imagine that um, the sort of soap opera and the psychodrama of the, the this sort of uh, – 
drama or this conflict between the New South Wales Liberals and the New South Wales Nationals will likely um, be sort of edged on another notch due to Mr Barilaro's um, rather intemperate actions um, on top of what has, I guess, been a sort of stunning performance from him all year, you know, showing sort of moderation, consideration, judicious behaviours and actions. So, yeah, get your popcorn out, folks. Yes, I think it's, uh, it has been... Uh... A pretty entertaining old affair, and in the end, I guess uh, what we've ended up with is uh, status quo. But like I said at the beginning, I think there are there were good reasons to think that this easily could have reverted to type as a as a bellwether seat, as a seat that rightly sits right in the middle, and usually with government. Um, and when the government's shoveling so much money into the economy and everything else, uh, I don't think it would have been unreasonable to imagine that uh, that. Um, with that kind of largesse, uh, the, the voters might have given the government a tick, but indeed it doesn't look like they have. I think, now, I think what would be really valuable is if we actually had a dedicated survey to actually really yes. kind of understand what was motivating people's votes. You know, anecdotally, there, there were reports that um, in the northern areas of the state, uh, of the seat, sorry, that um, were not affected by the bushfires, that are, you know, highly motivated by the, the problems of the growing recession in this country and in the southern part of the state, which has obviously been the seat, sorry, that's been devastated by these bushfires. That these, you know, that climate change was a was a bigger issue. But it's actually really quite difficult to know without dedicated research. Unfortunately, yeah, it's a very good point. You've got so many so many different uh, factors uh, operating in in such a wide seat as well. I mean, someone made the point over the weekend. This is a seat. Uh, with the geographical area of Switzerland, it's it's really large, and it's a, not even in the top ten of largest seats in Australia. But it's um, absolutely uh, huge by any sort of uh, international standard, and it's quite a job to represent it, of course. But it means that there are also very there's great diversity of interest in and and groups and regions within the seat. Um, let me bring in at this point uh, our third guest. I'm delighted to welcome Associate Professor Bjorn Dressel, who is Director of Research and Impact at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and he's an expert on Southeast Asia and some of the forces shaping its countries, from judicialization to militarization, and of course, the rise of strong men like Duterte and those sorts of uh, manifestations. But Bjorn is also a political scientist and a lawyer uh, by training, so I thought uh, why not uh, ask ask him a question about this as well. Bjorn, what's your uh, reaction to that observation that Maria made in her first response about the breaking down of political, you know, sort of lifelong political loyalties, the erosion of these big constellations or bases in the electorate, and that leading to. Um, I guess more volatility in elections, but that that is uh, by definition a good thing for democracy. I mean, it, there's, there, there are arguments both ways, aren't there? You could argue, yes, it, it, it does lead to greater democracy if people are thinking more actively about where they direct their vote, but it also can lead to some negative forces like populism. It can lead to instability. It can lead to an inability or an, un, uh, a tendency of politicians not to do difficult things because they can't rely on a political base to stick with them through you know, some of the things that we need governments to do in order to enact reforms. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me on the program. Um, of course, as a Southeast Asianist, I'm always puzzled when people get excited about elections in, in Australia and by-elections in particular. Um, nothing compared to elections in Southeast Asia, of course. And as you know, um, you know, while political scientists 
uh, always emphasized the importance of political parties and how important they are for aggregating votes and ideas and, and interests. Um, Southeast Asia is a region where parties are very weak. And in some ways, as you rightly pointed out, I think it's particularly the weakness of political parties that have contributed to tendencies of populism, you know, weak um, programmatic policies and so on. So when Maria is arguing that, you know, the downfall of parties or party alliances in Australia is a good thing for democracy, I think the region is also a warning sign what it could mean to have a less stronger party system. And there are certainly dangers associated with it. Well, I guess to, to just to jump in there, Bjorn, I guess what, I'm not saying that it's necessarily um, three cheers for the breakdown of, of party systems. I guess to, to refine my point further is that there is a sort of norm or an understanding in this country that majoritarian governments are good. And uh, that is just a, a preference that we have in this country because that is what we kind of know and we, what we are used to. And we really saw this with the minority Gillard and well, the minority Labor governments um, in which, you know, to be blunt, um, Australians just found it really hard to comprehend that we could have a minority parliament. And that is because we are so used to having political parties uh, dominate um, uh, federal politics and in particular uh, the, the the lower house. But the reality is, is that we actually have a parliamentary system. We, we have a long-standing coalition uh, that has been running for 100 years. And I find it really kind of bizarre that we're not very comfortable with the idea of uh, coalition politics in this country, given we have, one, a coalition that has lasted indefinitely, effectively, with mm. three interruptions for 100 years. Two, that... Um, you know, this this sort of concept about forming coalition agreements and parties coming to negotiations is seen as somehow illegitimate. And three, because of the Senate, right, and that is probably what is actually driving the downfall of party um, identification because voters have now for 30, 40 years uh, increasingly tended to vote one way in the lower house and another way in the upper house. They can kind of sort of see that these deal makings happen in the Senate and often they like it actually because they see it as a check. I just find it really kind of interesting that, you know, that attitude isn't applied to having faith in our parliament to be able to deliver ha- uh, outcomes in the lower house. But further to that, of course, the political parties don't like having to form coalition governments because currently if they are the executive, they get to have their way in the lower house no matter what. But, but I mean, fair enough, Maria, but as you know, I've lived in the United States for over 10 years before coming to Australia and there's often a sentiment in these countries with majoritarian systems that you want more of a European-style coalitional government. Um, but as you know, as a political scientist, I mean, the big trade-off here is between decisiveness and resoluteness Majoritarian systems generally create clear majorities and clear policy choices. Uh, Coalitional governments are often quite clumsy of putting together policy proposals and so on. And I would challenge you and I would say maybe uh, what we need in times like COVID is a more decisive government. And so uh, there's there's nothing wrong with majoritarian governments. I'm just wondering if we're defining our terms quite correctly, I mean, about in terms of majoritarianism. So I mean, here we're very much, uh, the political culture in Westminster systems is very much 50% plus one equals uh, more than enough, um, whether or not it's a thumping victory. But, you know, you win all, you get to make all the cabinet appointments, you get to make all those sort of uh, ministerial appointments and government agencies and what have you. And I've got to say, I found it fascinating being in Jakarta in particular for the presidential last year and watching 
Jokowi uh, win the presidency again, I think with around 55% of the vote. And <clears throat> there's a real difference there in terms of what comes next. So you'd think 55% is enough, uh, 55% is more than enough to be in a sort of commanding position. But the first thing he did, and this is something that happens over and over again in the Indonesian election cycles, is co-opt opposition parties into his coalition in the parliament. Because there's sort of eight or I think even 10, I guess you'd call major parties that have a significant number of seats. So he's now got effectively control over around 70% of the seats in the Indonesian parliament. You know, his presidential rival is his defence minister. So it's so different to what we're used to. But the upshot of all of it is actually, I don't think it's given uh, Jokowi an effective second term government because there's too much deal-making or or appeasing or peacemaking or compromises that have to take place within the governing coalition. And that really happened to Cecilia Bangbang-Yunho-Yono, his predecessor in SBY's second term as well. So I don't know that this kind of idea that 60% or 70% or grand coalitions actually equals better government. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, um, I have to say. Well, there's a difference between minimum winning coalitions, which is effectively what the um, the, the coalition government is right now, right? Mm. Because the Liberal Party can't govern on its own. It has to govern with the nationals. And a maximum winning coalition, which is sort of what you're describing there, where he's brought in yes. people who he doesn't actually need, but he's done it for whatever sort of strategic uh, reason that he's decided. And, and you know, you are right in the sense, like, I, I'm not saying that, um, that, you know, coalition or PR systems necessarily produce better governments uh, by default because, you know, what Bjorn said about decisiveness and also about uh, clear chains of accountability and responsibility uh, is um, correct. I guess what I am, you know, one of the other reasons why Australia is the way it is and, and, and has this mentality is because we have such strong party discipline, right? You know, effectively, people virtually never cross the floor or never object to their own uh, party's lines. Whereas if you look at the United Kingdom, which is a system that is even more like, well, it's the original Westminster system, and it's even more geared to a two-party winner-takes-all style form of, of government. Because they have such a large parliament, they also have backbench revolts, right? And so so my, my point here is that, you know, high party identification with compulsory voting and high party discipline means that our parties are quite lazy. They don't really have to work hard to get us to vote for them because we have to vote every time. Um, and that, and because they're quite large, it also means that it's not surprising that voters find it harder and harder to identify with these big party labels, right? You know, lots of young people don't necessarily want to sign up to the Labor Party or to the Liberal Party because even though they might agree with these policies over here, they just cannot they cannot vote for a party that does this over there, you know? And so one of the things about, I guess, having more parties and more kind of churn in the party system in the way people vote, it does force parties to be more responsive. Yes. Yeah, more dynamic. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it certainly I, creates I, I, other problems, though. There's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, it, do, it does. And look, I think uh, I, I agree with you, Maria. I think that potentially it's a positive development to have this breakdown in terms of the uh, articulation or the sensitivity that the system can have to, uh, you know, to voter attitudes. Um, 
And let's face it, at their best, governments that are in coalitions, at their best, can be very collaborative and um, and and can be prepared to make compromises where otherwise they might not be prepared to do so. Uh, and those compromises can be made in the public interest. They can also be made against the public interest. And I guess what we're really talking about here is whether in practice um, the breakdown or, or a more fluid, uh, less structured party system is... Um, is a better outcome as distinct from whether it's a better outcome in theory. Um, th- there are so many – we're never sort of comparing apples with apples here because there are so many other variables in political systems uh, from uh, state to state and so forth. But it is uh, – it's a really interesting debate about whether we can actually get um, more sensitive, more articulate, more more collaborative style of leadership that people would actually like to see rather than a kind of a slavish two-party system as we've had in Australia. And I think I agree with you, Maria, that I think the major parties have essentially been able to rely on people being either in one column or the other with a little bit of, you know, um, uh, a little bit of kind of adventurism on the edges, but essentially people are. I mean, and and the electoral system is even designed to end up that way. I mean, we don't end up with parliaments that are full of Labor and Liberal politicians because these parties are so damned excellent that no one else, you know, is uh, should, should ever be considered. It's the, the system is structured that way, and um, and even as people break away from these parties. Uh, we still see the uh, you know they they have a pretty much a lock on controlling the House of Representatives. Yeah, I guess the the final thing I would sort of say is that it it no matter what institutional setup you have, right, none of them will actually be perfect or deliver a, the best necessarily the best outcome. What they would do is create incentive structures which parties and voters will respond to. And so in many ways, if you want to sort of see big systemic changes in the way Australia is governed, that may mean you need to look at things like the size of the legislature, the way people are elected or selected into candidacy. Some of these things just happen because of inertia, like the fact that you have two different voting systems in the House and the Senate, effectively one being proportional and one being majoritarian. Like that is drive different sets Mm. of norms and behaviours in these two different houses. That's why those houses function so differently and why voters kind of understand this too and vote uh, differently. But there will always be trade-offs. James, can I ask you um, how important do you think transparency is in all of this? Because you'll remember that the the coalition agreement between the Nats and the Liberals in this country is uh, struck every time that those parties are uh, forming a government. Uh, Barnaby Joyce famously said at one stage four or five years ago uh, when there was a bit of pressure being put on for the terms of this agreement to um, to, to see the light of day, he said, well, it's, it's governed by three principles, that it be kept secret, that it be kept secret, that it be kept secret. Now, how acceptable is that, that we have two parties doing a deal with each other on policy, but also on the apportionment of ministerial positions, you know, plum powerful jobs, and that this is not that they they tell us this is a private agreement between the parties, and that it is not a matter that uh, will ever be exposed to um, you know public scrutiny. Look on a surface on the surface level, Mark. I think it's fine, you know, in that people expect people know that the Liberal Party and the National Party are allies, that they govern in coalition. <clears throat> and they have, you know, for decades now. So it, at first light, it looks fine. Where it actually becomes a problem is when this agreement governs policymaking in, or, or drives policymaking in a certain way 
or in a certain direction that no one can kind of really understand why. So I'm thinking particularly of um, water policy being something that the Nats, of course, have always had a particular interest in. Um, Or um, in the last parliament, same-sex marriage, where there was a massive hold-up and essentially Malcolm Turnbull was for months, I think if not years, held to ransom not only by his own backbench or elements of his own backbench who didn't want to see uh, you know, the law reformed, but the National Party uh, agreement as well. We always suspected, and in fact, I th- did we know? I can't even remember. It's years now, but did we know, did we suspect that it was also being held up by the National Party or elements of the National Party who, broadly speaking, with Darren Chester being an honourable exception, didn't, I think, it was a good idea to change or at least even have the conversation and a national vote, which we ultimately eventually did. That's where it's a real problem. People should know ahead of time what electing this governing coalition is actually going to mean and and what the parameters are, what's going to be off the table because these two parties are in coalition together. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fundamental. Now, look, let's uh, use this moment to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, talk about the region, uh, which uh, um, both James and Bjorn are uh, very much experts on in terms of what's going on in the region at the moment. There's challenges with the COVID crisis, of course, and there are big strategic, geostrategic changes that are going on as well. So we'll be back in a moment to uh, ventilate those issues. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, let's talk about the region. There are some big things happening in the region, of course, many countries. There's the rise of China. There's the reaction to that. There's all kinds of, um, uh, you know, chaos going on in Hong Kong. And, of course, overlaid on all of this, we have the COVID crisis. Um, Bjorn, what's your reading of the, uh, the the situation as we see it at the moment in terms of where Australia fits in? Australia's just made this big uh, statement last week. The Prime Minister's released this um, uh, document uh, explaining that Australia is going to beef up its, uh, its uh, defensive positioning. Uh, it's going much more on the front foot, long-range missiles, subs, frigates, smart sea mines, hypersonic space capabilities, all kinds of things like this to to really um, extend Australia's forthrightness in terms of its defensive posture. Do you think this is viewed with um, enthusiasm or um, or suspicion in the system? I mean, obviously, it'd be different in China than in some of the other places, but what's your reading of that? 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, Mark, and I've been giving it some thought here. I mean, I think, um, first of all, as a starting point, I would say, uh, you know, the region is experiencing a quite common dilemma here. One is that the U.S. military and diplomatic predictability is not a given anymore, uh, particularly under the Trump administration. And China, as we all know, is not accepting a secondary role in the region's evolving security system uh, anymore either. So what that means is that, you know, a lot of the traditional U.S. treaty alliance partners, you know, like Thailand, like the Philippines, but in some ways this also also applies to Australia, um, you know, they're facing now a, a kind of a, a dilemma. You know, they have a, a weakening traditional partner and they have growing economic ties with China and they're trying to find their footing in, in all of that. And Southeast Asia, just as a reminder, of course, is a region that has always tried to manage these quite difficult relationships with uh, the great powers and uh, try to balance these great powers. Uh, think long term historically you know when when you manage tributary relationships with china as a southeast asian kingdom but think also about the cold war period where they had to juggle uh, soviet influence and u.s influence in the region so to to circle back to it i think w what i would just say here is none of the southeast asian states has a particular coherent policy towards china or towards uh, the u.s uh, All of them are quite busy in defining their foreign policy and their security interest, uh, largely driven by domestic interests and needs. And you see that very clearly. And so what I'm fearing from my connections in Southeast Asia, particularly in military circles, you will not hear this officially, but I think there is a lot of sympathy, particularly within the military establishment in the Philippines and Thailand uh, and also in Indonesia, vis-a-vis -vis the new Australian defense policy. I think uh, they are kind of uh, happy to welcome these kind of new ideas and engagement in the region. Uh, but politically, I don't think you will hear anything to that effect because, you know, frankly, Uh, they are treading a very fine line here between the two major powers. James, that seems to be, uh, that accords quite strongly with something you've written recently, uh, that uh, you think there will be a fairly high degree of support amongst the Southeast Asian nations, but they won't be saying it overtly, but they'll quietly be happy that Australia is taking up some of the responsibility? Yeah, I, I, look, I did write something to that exact uh, effect the other day, Mark, and uh, look, I think it's correct. So, To pick up Bjorn's point, he, he's spot on. Um, I'd go a little bit further and I'd say that ASEAN's um, uh, handling of the relationship with China is just not coherent. There's not a coherent ASEAN position. That's because um, Cambodia particularly, but also Laos to some extent, are very much uh, almost client states of China now. They're very reliant on them economically. So, What that means in a practical sense is that things such as a code of conduct um, for countries in the South China Sea gets held up uh, because there can't be a unified ASEAN position. So what we're seeing as a consequence of that is countries such as Vietnam, Indonesia and the Philippines and to a much lesser overt extent Malaysia trying to assert or, or trying to uh, make clear that they see themselves as the rightful owners of exclusive economic zones in that contested sea space. But what's happening practically is that China is established, um, as uh, Malcolm Turnbull said to me the other day, there's sort of facts on the water. They've militarized more islands, small islands in the South China Sea than any other nation in the region. And they've kind of 
I think the the race is almost over, if you if you like. Now, the Wall Street Journal had a piece the other day saying that the US has deployed two carrier groups to the South China Sea, which is very unusual. So that you are seeing a kind of some response from the US, but um, what it actually means in a practical sense is not much. Now, the US is there to enforce the the idea that it's you know a free and open Indo-Pacific, that nations can transit through this sea. And of course, remember that something like a third of the world's trade, trillions of dollars in trade passes through that sea every year. It's a crucial sea space. But what does that mean for Australia? And why does what we uh, what we announced last week, why does that matter? Well, to Bjorn's point, to your point, it shows that we're more engaged with the region. And I think that's um, welcomed by these nations because what's happening is China's kind of the term people use is salami slicing the region. They're claiming a few more islands. They're claiming a few more islands. We've seen them this year sink a couple of Vietnamese fishing boats in uh, in, in, in waters that Vietnam claims, that China claims. We've seen them harassing a Malaysian oil exploration vessel. We've seen them in the Nantuna Sea over December, January, in a, Indonesia's exclusive economic zone, harassing you know Indonesian fishermen there. And that's the salami slicing. There's no coherent uh, ASEAN response to this increasingly um, forward-leaning China. And that means essentially that any extra support from a country like Australia, any kind of deeper engagement from uh, from Australia in the region is welcomed. Now, Malaysia in particular are very quiet about these sorts of things, but, you know, the new uh, missiles that we've announced, um, I mean, one of the kind of most important questions is not so... So much should we or should we not have them, but where are they going to be deployed? Now, if they're in Darwin or near Darwin or in Townsville, then the range, uh, I think it's around 370 Ks. It's significant, but it's not a, it's not a huge upgrade on our current capacities. It's not However, intercontinental. If they're, if, well, if they're, if they're on, um, you know, hornets that get based out of HMAS Butterworth, uh, a Malaysian base that was once an Australian base, at which we still have squadrons, uh, that, that you know is the sort of primary location from which our overflights in the South China Sea are taking place. Then that's a significant um, uh, kind of raise in, uh, raising of our um, uh, capacities in the region, and that is something that China will take notice of. Um, so you know it's sort of an interesting first step. It's a it's a positive first step, I think, in a regional sense. But the question is, what comes next? Paul Keating used to talk about um, getting our security in Asia rather than from Asia. Uh, is this a manifestation of that in a sense? I mean, when he was talking about that, I suppose it was it, it, it had a, a particularly a domestic flavour as well because he was making the point that Australia is part of this economic region and strategically part of the region as well. But it has a particular interest now because uh, obviously everyone regards the sort of number one security challenge of Australia being this expansive China. That is the sort of unspoken and occasionally spoken core of this whole strategic step up, if I can put it like that. Uh, But at the same time, we have these uh, communal interests or a common interest with a number of those Southeast Asian states uh, that you just mentioned, uh, countries like Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia. Uh, So are we actually, is there an opportunity here where Australia is able to build those 
relationships and uh, those partnerships based on us taking up this responsibility, this uh, this more uh, assertive defence posture, uh, and, and as a pushback towards China, um, which, as you say, it hasn't just used the sort of salami slicing approach for the militarisation or the colonisation of these islands, but but it's also been very successful in running for a long time a kind of a divide and conquer approach. It's probably manifest in the, the the neutering of ASEAN as a as a unified body for pushing back at China, but it's also uh, meant that China can then use its might against in its negotiations, its bilateral negotiations with Vietnam or with the Philippines or with any of these other countries over the South and East China Seas and these kinds of things. So w- what do you think about that, Bern? Well, I mean, first of all, let's step back here a little bit. I mean, there's a recent report by uh, produced by ISIS in Singapore, uh, looking at you know the attitude of policymakers in in Southeast Asia. And I think what's quite interesting about that survey is that it presented the idea that um, there is actually a majority of of policymakers hold a distrust of big powers in the region, and 85 percent, just to I'm just looking up the numbers, are worried about China's political and strategic influence in the region. And you're absolutely right, and James is absolutely right. Uh, you know, China is testing the waters. There are many maritime disputes. There are illegal fishing disputes. Um, you know, there are of course strategic uh, movements that are taking place that are quite worrisome for the states in Southeast Asia. But I would also say, you know, these states are big states. And I think sometimes the conversation on Australia always makes it look like uh, Australia has a particular responsibility here. But, you know, we're talking about Indonesia with 270 million people, the Philippines, Vietnam, over 100 million people. So at the end of the day, these states have to define their own uh, strategic interests and they have to design their own policies and they will do so in their best interests. So, f- for instance, when I sometimes hear that the Philippines is pivoting towards China, there's arms procurement now coming from China and they're leaving essentially the, the orbit of the United States, I would push back against that and I would say that many states in Southeast Asia currently are making decisions that are beneficial to them. That is, for instance, in the area of arms procurement uh, from Russia or from China that is purely based on the on, on cost decisions. And in some ways, the Philippines is a good example of saying they're playing both sides. They are wanting to maximize on investment from China. I mean, China has promised over $45 billion of investment over the next years. And they're trying to also uh, garner the interest of the United States to stay engaged in the country uh, in, in various areas. So turning back to Australia, what I would argue here is that if Australia wants to play a bigger role in Southeast Asia, it cannot just be a role that is confined to a militaristic understanding and a strategic understanding of the region. It's also uh, needing to play a constructive role in building bridges in fostering collaboration, investment, and what Australia has always done best, which is to create international trade regimes and and fostering a deepening of engagement in the region. And I think that's falling off currently in in the current public policy debate. Um, I think, you know, the strategic hawks are taking over, but Australia has a much broader role to play. And to play that role, I would argue, finally, Australia also has to come to terms with its own ability and its own innovation potential and its own economic potential, which, quite frankly, uh, is relatively fragile at this point in time. I was going to ask uh, both Bjorn and James, uh, you know, given given your sort of um, perspectives uh, as, you know, people who have spent a lot of time in Australia or who have always been Australian, um, what does 
but have also, you know, engaged heavily with this region. What does Australia not really understand, you know, and, and are we are we missing opportunities? I think we're missing, I'll very quickly, because this circles back to something Bern was just saying, um, another opportunity we're missing is in the aid space. Now, you know, despite the government's um, denials uh, or, or obfuscations, um, the proportion of money we spend on aid uh, has been cut significantly since 2013, since the change of government. That has had a material impact on our ability to do soft diplomacy in the region. Um, I think the cutting of Radio Australia, similarly, it's soft power, um, that has had a material impact in the region too. Now, in the last year or two, there has been a significant refocusing on the Pacific, uh, and that's that was long overdue. But we need to think of Southeast Asia too. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of Indonesia. But you know, to your broader point, Maria, there is also a sensitivity in Southeast Asia about the kind of, I guess you'd almost say a, a white paternalistic view that does exist still here in some quarters about, you know, or, you know here we are coming in to help you, you should be grateful. Um, and I think DFAT actually does a pretty good job of steering well away from that these days and trying to work with partners in Indonesia and what have you. But I guess I'm saying the actual program could be so much bigger. Now, there are some in the current government who have a view essentially that Indonesia is a developed country and it doesn't need aid anymore. Now, if you're in South Jakarta, you know, at Sinayan City Shopping Mall, you know, you could be in Singapore, you could be at Chadston, you could be, you know, in Bondi, there's no difference. But if you're, you know, out in the provinces in, in Lombok or, or somewhere like that, up in Riau, um, then things, it's a very different picture. And there is sort of development work that needs to be done that we could be playing a much more consequential part in the region by doing. Um, and that applies as well to East Timor, where Indonesia, sorry, where China has really stolen a march on everyone. And again, we're sort of playing catch up. That's, I think, a sweet spot for Australia or a potential sweet spot for Australia. And yeah, no, I agree with James here. I mean, I think the integration of AUSAID into DFAT uh, has really backfired on a broader conceptualization of the aid agenda. Uh, in terms of Southeast Asia, but also the Pacific. Uh, I think Australia has been reeling from this ever since. And in some ways, um, I, I would hope that, that Australia recognizes that there's a real soft power potential as a middle power in the region to play. But, you know, the realities, the realities are such that uh, China is just of rising importance. I mean, I, I just looked this up the other day. Uh, Indonesia trades with China almost three times as much as with the United States. Uh, China is the fastest investor in Indonesia. Chinese tourists outstrip uh, American, Australian, Japanese and Russian tourists combined. And let's not forget, there are more Indonesian students now studying in China than they are studying in the United States. And I think uh, maybe I'm having a bias here as being a, a professor in a public policy school, but I think Australia should put its money on training uh, students from and public servants from Southeast Asia. That's how you build linkages. And you can see this uh, quite clearly in the military complex, where in, in many ways Australia has played a very constructive role over the last decades. There are long-standing relationships with the military in the Philippines, in Thailand, in Indonesia. It's paying off handsomely, and I think we need to do the same in the wider public policy space. Yeah, that's right, Bjorn. The, the relationship between the Indonesian police, the Australian police, and military to military is actually really strong. Where the relationship falls down is more in uh, sort of civil society linkages. And to your point about public servants and, and building public sector capacity, I mean, I was 
surprised, and this is something that the Australian Treasury doesn't advertise at all, but we actually have people embedded in the Indonesian equivalent, the, the Indonesian Treasury and a couple of other public sector agencies. Now, that country has major problems in terms of uh, its tax system. I think the collect, I think something like only 9 or 10% of Indonesians pay tax. They're slowly getting the system back up to speed. It's a real priority for um, the finance minister, Sri Mulyani, who, of course, is a former, I think, director of um, the World Bank, you know, a, a very kind of esteemed and um, uh, an excellent public servant. But we've got people in the Treasury there trying to help, uh, you know, bring things up to speed and provide advice and, well, this is what we do, best practice type uh, information. But we, I think, potentially, and if the uh, offer was welcomed, we could be providing a lot more assistance. Hmm. No, I, I agree. And I mean, I should have mentioned that I worked for the World Bank before. And so I was involved in, in, in the treasuries in some of these countries you mentioned. But I guess, you know, the point I want to get across, James, is, uh, you know, these countries are also maturing and, and they have lots of problems, uh, but they have also an increasing capacity uh, and they have an increasing desire of becoming independent in how they chart their path. And so I think the role of Australia cannot just be in sitting and being embedded in departments and, and in some ways providing technical advice, which is still needed in many instances. But I think the role of Australia should be to foster peer-to-peer -peer conversations among these countries, learning from each other um, and how they can do things better. And that's taking place, by the way, in Africa, where treasuries are meeting regularly, uh, facilitated by aid agencies, where they exchange changing, you know, what they need and how they can do things better. Because the realities of an Indonesian treasury is such, so different to the Australian treasury that often the knowledge transfer is not even working properly. Yes. Now, look, can I just, uh, there are many questions I would like to pursue here because it's just such a fascinating topic, uh, but uh, we're, we're getting a little bit uh, long on time. So I, I would really like to also go to uh, COVID and how that is affecting the region. Uh, I've got a few numbers just in front of me, which I thought I might um, uh, point out to to you uh, as part of this discussion, because I think it gives a, a really interesting sort of context to this COVID crisis. Um, as we know, there's 11.5 million people globally who've been infected, 550,000 or so have died. And uh, in a number of different places around the world, the infection seems to be uh, raging further out of control. Interestingly, however, in this region where we know that cities are very tightly populated and uh, where there have been very great concerns about what would happen if the virus uh, took hold, the, the numbers in most cases are, are, um, are low. In, they're low in the kind of Australian context. You know, they're, they're really quite remarkable. I mean, Japan... Uh, in, in North Asia, obviously, uh, nearly a 1,000 deaths, 977. But as you go down, I'll just give you a few numbers. South Korea, 283 deaths. Malaysia, 121. Thailand, 58. Hong Kong, just seven. Vietnam, zero. Cambodia, zero. Timor-Leste, zero. Laos, zero. PNG, zero. Um, it's quite, that's quite interesting in itself, I think, uh, given the fears that were around. But... Uh, can I ask both of you, perhaps to you first, Bjorn, are you, uh, what do you think is the uh, is the worst problem facing these countries at the moment in terms of the uh, in terms of the response to COVID, and who's doing it better and who isn't? Well, I mean, first of all, let's be a bit sceptical with some of the numbers presented. Uh, I think uh, you know there are some issues, particularly in more authoritarian settings, whether the numbers are reliable. But but I mean, the fact remains, Indonesia and the Philippines 
have the largest number of cases compared, uh, even including uh, Singapore, um, and the numbers are rising in the Philippines and in Indonesia. Um, now, there is always a difference here between infection rates and actually mortality rates. Mortality rates in Singapore are very low. In, in the Philippines, they're quite high. That's mm -hmm. the health capacity in these countries. But, but I guess uh, the, the broader point uh, to make here really is, um, you know, I guess the COVID crisis uh, is nothing new to the region in the sense of the historical experience of the past epidemic. And so many countries, and I'm talking here particularly about countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, and so on, were quite well prepared. Um, and, uh, you know, you see that actually in, in terms of the response uh, of the region to the crisis. Uh, I think what is much more worrisome is that in some states, the crisis is also used to move into other areas that are unrelated, and that is particularly the use of emergency powers and the erosion of the constitutional order. And that's, of course, a slightly different topic now, but, but I'm saying that's where I would be worried about. So it's moving from a health crisis into other areas that are much more political, and I think that's where we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, uh, to pick up Jörn's point, um, look, I'm really sceptical about Cambodia's numbers. Um, uh, Hun Sen is an authoritarian prime minister who despite outward appearances, um, actually does face some internal challenges in terms of keeping uh, his hands on the reins of power, despite holding all 128 seats of the parliament. So I'm a bit sceptical about the numbers we're seeing out of Cambodia. Um, Thailand and Malaysia uh, and Singapore, uh, Singapore's had an outbreak uh, amongst the migrant, you know, the, the very much not well-off migrant community, the low-paid workers in those dorm rooms. Uh, otherwise, they've done a pretty good job. Um, Malaysia's done a great job. They recorded their first day of zero cases, I think, three days ago. And Thailand, to Bjorn's point as well, has done really well. And I think these countries have had experience with SARS, and that's what stood them in pretty good stead. The country that really worries me uh, is Indonesia. Um, the I recently interviewed the governor of Jakarta. Jakarta's done by far the best in terms of testing rates. They're at about 20,000 tests per million people. The average in Indonesia is about 2,000 tests per million people across all 34 provinces. And the governor said, look, he basically doesn't believe the national statistics. The time we spoke, there were about 1,000 deaths in Jakarta. He said, look, based on funeral data, he thought the real death toll just in a city of 10 million uh, was about 7,000 people, not 1,000 people. And if it's 7,000 people dead, then it's orders of magnitude bigger in terms mm. of the number of cases. So Indonesia at the moment, I think it's on around 63,000. Uh, you know, I'm working on a story today uh, without giving too much away, uh, Mark, but basically there Don't are right, people, we, It'll be out by the time this comes out. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, there, there are experts who are saying they think that the infection rate could be five to ten times higher in Indonesia, um, which would put caseloads up around 250,000. The reason we don't know is that because, uh, to Bjorn's point, that, you know, health system capacity there, unlike Thailand or Malaysia or Singapore, it's just not great. And they're testing around 10,000 people a day. Now in Australia, you know, we kind of forget how lucky we are and we all complain about Medicare. Actually, Medicare is pretty damn good. And, you know, we're seeing states of four or five, six million people doing 20,000 tests a day. If they're doing 10,000 tests a day for 270 million people, they're just not going to be picking up all the cases. And the other problem, of course, for the government there is that is the economic imperative. When you've got a workforce that, uh, you know, close to half of it's in the informal sector, you know, living day to day, getting paid day to day in a lot of cases, 
if they can't work, then they can't eat. They can't pay their rent. You know, they have to go back to their home villages potentially, and that then takes the the vital. Again, potentially the virus can then spread all across the archipelago. So I'm quite concerned about what's going on there, and we're seeing a real trend upwards in terms of case numbers on a daily basis. We're up around sixteen hundred a day, and I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but um, all the the signs at the moment are not good. No, I agree, James. And and interestingly enough, again, China to the rescue. I mean, uh, China has offered Indonesia help in that space. I mean, the Alibaba Foundation has donated. Two million face masks and 150,000 test kits. Uh, one wonders again, why is that not an opportunity for Australia to come in and, and, and be a good partner? Yeah, we've given four million towards the effort to fight coronavirus. That was announced uh, around about a week ago or so. And I mean, every little bit helps, but that's a tiny sum in comparison, isn't it? It, it is. And it, it's an excellent point to end on, really, because uh, it, I think, encapsulates that problem that uh, we've all been talking about, the nature of our relationship and the ways in which we could improve uh, some of our um, uh, support in the region and to do so in ways that aren't just expressed through um, uh, either a narrow strategic lens or um, or perhaps in the uh, in the sort of um, uh, ways, you know, purely di diplomatic. Uh, look, thank you to Maria Teflaga, to Bjorn Dressel and to James Masola. It's been terrific having this discussion, uh, quite a wide-ranging discussion, let me just say, if I could talk properly. Um, and uh, thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. I'll be back uh, later in the week with a Democracy Sausage Extra. Uh, so until then, uh, bye for now. Thank you.